And what I'm thinking is I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance, you know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know, that's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis. In a Martin Scorsese picture. The king of comedy. You can, yeah. Let's make it happen. Especially on the Recons in a Jet. <laughs> 48 hours is... Two, two hours to yeah, get anywhere yeah, in the world. Exactly. Uh, well, welcome back to another episode of Reconcinimation. I am John Diner. And I am Brent Hutchins. And that's right. We are going, well, solo tag team, really. Just the two of us for the first time uh, it's just the, publicly. Yeah, just the two of us. It's, yeah. Uh, we're down a man, but we're going to do our best to, to carry on. Well, yeah, our, our pal, our, our cohort, David, has uh, the way it works here at Recon Cinema Studios with vacation time is you've got to work about 35 years before you start to clock vacation time. So, you know, he's he's hit that. He's earned it finally. So he finally gets a, got his day off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He has a vacation and he is going to Atlantic City and yeah. he's going to be there for about 12 hours and he'll be back. Turn right back around. <laughs> he's going to take the bus there, get out, get back on the bus and come right back. That's right. That's right. He wanted to buy a ticket to the Rupert Pupkin show and uh, I have to. Rupert Pupkin? I, I, I hate to break it to him. He's going to find out that that's not real. No. Um, yeah, so it's just the two of us. I think, you know, we've had many a private uh, film discussion, uh, never one about this movie in particular. So, do you want to do you want to tell everybody what we're looking at today? You, you want? Yeah, absolutely. We today are going to be discussing the Martin Scorsese classic, King of Comedy. Which, honestly, I'd never seen until we until I watched it for this, but really liked it. Robert De Niro, wow, so good. Yeah, this was uh, God. It's funny. This was a first, uh, basically a first time watch for me. I saw it for the first time last year in in twenty twenty. Uh, but this has been on my list for forever, and and I've got a long relationship with Scorsese. I mean, he was my you know, in my top three directors for a really long time. Where, where, how did you feel? I, I don't remember how in gen, in a general sense, how you feel about Scorsese. 
Oh, I I love Scorsese. I uh, some of his movies are my very favorites. But and he's his. I mean, I feel like he continues to put out quality films. He's one of the I feel like directors who uh, has not aged out. Like his his process and his storytelling still carries weight, and it's still you know like I'm always. Uh, very invested anytime I'm watching uh, one of his films, even even the latest one, The Irishman, uh, right? Which was about six hours long and arguable about 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 it. I still loved it. I was hanging on on every frame. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I know. We'll talk about that one another time. I can yeah. see it and hear it in your voice. <laughs> You have thoughts, which I appreciate I, because you your love for Scorsese is is certainly different than mine. I find I find him uh, very entertaining, but you have a passionate passionate affinity for for Scorsese. Yeah, it's uh, and it's again like a lot of like I'm finding myself at this stage of my life where my relationships with some of these films and filmmakers are really evolving. That. Maybe I used to love them a lot and I'm not loving them as much anymore. And some it's the other direction. Like I'm a much bigger John Carpenter fan now than I was. Like I've always appreciated him, but now I'm like a diehard. And in the old days, I was a diehard Scorsese fan. Now I'm, I'm less. I mean, he's got a much larger body of work. And I think there have been a lot of, I guess I would say a, a fair amount of misses. Uh, amongst that group but uh, but the classics are the classics and you know everybody uh, you know in their greatest films list not everybody but a lot of people are gonna have your good fellas and your raging bulls and taxi drivers of course and they're clearly some of the greatest films of all time but he's also got another you know kind of a bunch of hidden gems in there from his early days and and i feel like king of comedy is one of them so when you look at when you look at the evolution of his work, when you get to the eighties, it's sort of this like lull for a lot of people that you've got raging bull in the beginning. And then you've got Goodfellas in 1990. And in between is just a bunch of other films that, you know, nobody really talks about that much. And I feel like there's some masterpieces in there. <laughs> like, I don't know about you. That's how I feel. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, Definitely some masterpieces. I think there's more that people talk about than, than uh, I mean, I guess Mean Streets and Taxi Driver were before Raging Bull. Raging right. Bull was kind of like the pinnacle of that, of of his films up to that point. But I think, yeah, to your to your point, yeah, I guess I mean those are probably the milestone movies: Raging Bull, Goodfellas. Um, but well, then yeah. he got popular. He was really popular after Goodfellas. You know, Cape Fear was a popular movie. Casino was a popular movie. Maybe not The Age of Innocence, but you know, he was um, more than just a, like an arts director. You know, more than an artistic. Oh yeah, filmmaker. yeah. He became so, more mainstream. But yeah. I mean, I mean, were those movies not mainstream when they came out? Like, I mean, being a film student, you know, we talk about them so much. I feel like they were mainstream, but were they, were they not? 
Well, it's hard to say, you know, in the 70s, what a mainstream movie was because every filmmaker had sort of a different style and they were so different from what had come before. So I I guess I guess maybe Taxi Driver would be considered a mainstream. I mean, Mean Streets was like his first film. I think it was technically his third film. And and that was the first one that had a bigger impact. Right. It got, led... him, it got him noticed. It, it, I Correct. mean, it paved the way for his career. Right. Yeah. But but Taxi Driver, I feel like I mean, by the time. You know, when I was in high school, it was still like, I mean, this was many years after that movie was, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And it was like super talked about very much still in the pop culture. I mean, t-shirts, posters. Oh, yeah. oh the I mean, posters. And this was, this yeah. was years and years. I mean, this was 10 plus years after, after the movie had been, you know, made. So I think, I don't know, that one to me seems like it's pretty mainstream, but I, I don't know if that came later after and it became kind of a cult pop icon or if it was the movie. I, or, I think, or if it was that way when the movie first released. I, I think it was that way pretty quickly. I mean, it was nominated obviously for a whole bunch of Oscars and, and uh, yeah, was always one of the, I think one of the more popular seventies films, which is funny to say that, a movie like Taxi Driver is so popular and how dark it is and 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 it holds up as as far you know from that dark perspective on society it's still it's still relevant. Yeah. I mean I said 10 years it was 20 years after and it was still when I was in high school and it was yeah. still insanely talked about all the time. Yeah, I had I had a Taxi Driver poster. I had two Taxi Driver posters and I, it was one of those that when you went to whatever store would sell movie posters like you'd have godfather scarface taxi driver and a few others but those were the ones you could count on every store having a, a handful of them yeah but yeah and, and you know as then which led to raging bull and being another very heavy oscar favorite i mean it's it's considered the greatest movie of the 80s it's considered one of the greatest movies of all time Arguably, it's Scorsese's masterpiece. I'm not sure I feel that way, but um, it's, I mean, it's certainly up there for sure. It's not necessarily one of my favorite ones, but I can obviously respect it and it, it has its place. Yeah, but then I mean, after that, we like kind of turn this corner of Scorsese's more, sort of his more quiet films that sure. they're not as. I don't know. They just weren't as popular. They weren't as well loved at the time. They didn't make as big of a splash. They didn't get awards attention all the way up to probably last temptation of Christ. And then, then you kind of, and then Goodfellas and you, then he's back, uh, you know, on the, on the popular scale. So. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because looking at the list of movies between raging bull and last temptation of Christ, I mean, they're good movies. Mm -hmm. King of Comedy is good. I mean, again, I know I just saw it for the first time this week. But I don't understand why that movie hadn't been talked about more. King of Comedy is almost like a companion piece with Taxi Driver. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. It's a different, it's, it's definitely a different take on mental illness. But like, you know, it's, it's uh, certainly like if you're watching Taxi Driver, 
and enjoying that, you know, you, you, I think you would really enjoy King of Comedy as well. It's definitely not as gritty, definitely not as violent. It's a different story altogether, um, but, but they work really well together. Uh, absolutely. I mean, they, you can easily see them existing in the, in the same universe. We, we'll even call it the Scorsese, the, S, <laughs> the SCU, Scorsese Cinematic Universe. Works for everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, like it, it's very much the same tone, uh, just a little bit of a different angle. And we'll get into all this as, as we start talking in, in detail about the film. What, uh, so, all right, you just saw the film for the first time. Yes. So we're going to get your, your detailed feedback here. But when was the first time, when did you hear about the King of Comedy? Uh, when did you start, when did it like come on your radar as, oh, that's a Scorsese film? That's a, you know, a De Niro movie? I think it was the last record we did. <laughs> no, it couldn't have been that early, but like it was not really on my radar at all. Like, and that's the thing that I find so... I mean, strange is that, you know, being someone who enjoys movies and have, has wanted to work in the film industry since I can remember and is working in the film industry and went to film school and did all the little check boxes <laughs> to, you know, to be a film nerd. I checked all the boxes. You did. And like King of Comedy, totally not on my radar at all. Yeah, well, it it really wasn't on a lot of people's radar, and right? It, but it I don't, was, know. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. It should be on everybody's radar. It was, I, I, I like it. I thought it was really good. I guess now because of the Joker, is that so? You said that you saw it a year ago, right? Yes. Yeah. So is that because of the Joker and? Yeah, it released its similarities, and so you went to watch King of Comedy because you had heard, oh, Scorsese has a movie that 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 uh, you know the Joker is kind of paying homage to. Yeah, well, I had always known of the movie, and I and I'm I'm going to take a sidebar here, and I'm going to answer your question, and then I'm going to take a sidebar about something totally different, but Let's do somewhat it. related. So this has always been on my radar as as a Scorsese film, as a De Niro film. I remember being a kid and walking through my local video store, Movies One. And this was another movie that I, I saw on the shelf and I remember the cover. And it was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a drawn cover with like a like a card from a deck of cards and with De Niro on like one side of it and Jerry Lewis on the other. And I just thought it looked very bizarre. And I thought it was ser like a serious, almost like a horror movie. So I stayed away from it for years. And then I always heard that it was, that it was, um, that it wasn't very good, that it just wasn't a good, you know, if you're looking for a Scorsese movie, don't watch that one. It's like sort of the one to brush off. And I don't know where that ever came from, but so I, yeah. I never watched it. And all through film school and all through my love of Scorsese, I just kind of leapfrogged this one. And it wasn't until, and, and then it sort of vanished from my mind. It wasn't talked about. It was sort sure. of a forgotten film. It never ran on TV. It wasn't streaming. I mean, or obviously streaming. And then the Joker came out last year and 
suddenly there was all this talk and this ref- the references to the movie that, oh, it calls back to that. It calls back to Taxi Driver. So yeah, totally piqued my interest. And then I asked myself, what the hell was I doing all this time? That I ha- Why did I not even just try the movie? Well, what's yeah, wrong with me? That's where I'm at right now, except I didn't know about it, but I'm upset at myself for not knowing about it. Yeah. Like obviously sometime in my life, being a film dork, I'm like, of course I'm looking at IMDb and I'm looking up Scorsese and his movies because I like basically all of them that I've seen for the most part. And how did I not read far enough down to see this one and be like, oh, I should check that out. I'm upset at myself. I because think. it because there just was no talk about it unless you were a, a, a film fanatic and really you know were really immersed in that world no one else was talking about this movie yeah. you know it it uh, it might as well have been erased essentially so right and then the joker came out and that's when people started talking about it again mm-hmm. because this right because like the joker is essentially a combination of both what taxi driver and king of comp the king yeah of comp. it's real yeah yes um I have a lot of issues with the Joker, but sure. Yes. In, in essence, it's, it really is a combination of both of those movies and you could make a case that it's even a sequel to King of comedy. Okay. I could see a case being made. Yeah. So, but before we go any further, all right, we're stopping. Hold we're we're going to we're going to pull the pull the car over. We're going to we're going to do a sidebar here. So Okay. Watching this movie again, talking about it, researching it, now we're discussing it, thinking about movies one, okay? My my local video store, my favorite video store growing up till I we switched to a different one when I was like, I don't know, 12 or something. So I've been thinking about that. Then the other night as we record this, I watched a documentary that's very popular right now called the last blockbuster. It's great. And a memory was triggered. I completely forgot that you'll probably remember this. If you haven't, even if uh, you've probably seen the movie, but you remember this clip in the last blockbuster toxic Avenger three. Yeah. There's a scene. I think the opening of the movie is where there's like Toxie fights these gang kind of guys in this video store i completely forgot that that video store is movies one Uh, what your your childhood video store is famous my childhood i completely famous yeah i completely forgot that they had shot and it was a big deal at the time that i remember the uh joey the guy who owned it who's in toxic avenger he's one of the uh uh one of the you know, salesman at the video store. He's like hiding behind the counter. He's the younger guy. Oh, wow, man. That's him. And he was, it was like a big deal that, Hey, they actually shot a movie in this video store. So now all of you listening to this can witness my very own movies. One there, there it is. You've seen the re- the real deal. That's awesome. Toxic Avengers, one of the, one of those movies that I saw as a child when I was sleeping over at my neighbor's house watching HBO late at night, that I definitely should not have seen uh, at the age that I was at, but it left a a, a lifelong impression. Uh, and the scene that sticks out in my head every single time is when that kid's riding his bike home and they run him over. <laughs> it's 
horrible, yeah. horrible. But uh, yeah, man, I went through a whole phase loving the trauma movies. One, one year I went to Sundance and instead of going to Sundance and doing a lot of the Sundance stuff, at the same time, they do trauma dance uh, in, in uh, uh, Salt Lake. And mm-hmm. so I went there instead for the week and, and just watched a whole bunch of trauma movies. It was, it was great. Nice. Yeah, well, that's a whole, that's a whole subgenre right there. Yeah. Not not king of comedy off topic, but nice. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so I'm glad movies won. I, you can't find like I've been looking. I can't find pictures of it online. Nothing. You've but got them. But we have Toxic Avenger three, which shows the walls, the building, all of it. So, wow. So I could I can watch that movie, and I can imagine a young John just yeah. cruising through the aisles looking at the boxes taking in the smell of the video store yeah and just i can imagine a young john and his love for films just blossom That's yeah pretty awesome. you can picture me roaming the aisles being morbidly fascinated by box <laughs> you know box covers like the company of wolves and yes. texas chainsaw 2 and oh that's Fr- a good one though all the Friday the 13th movies at the time, which was, I think, seven of them. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's the place you can feel. You can watch Toxie 3 and feel the essence of of movies one. So I'm kind of excited to do that. Now, can you find Toxic Avenger 3 anywhere? It's probably like, I don't, you screaming. know, yeah, I don't know what the deal is. Maybe on Prime. I feel like Prime's the place to carry that, but I, I'm not sure what the yeah. streaming deal is with the trauma films. So, but I know it's on YouTube. So that's true. If you look up Toxic Avenger 3 video store fight, it's there. You get the whole thing. So, all right. There you uh, go. Thank you. I, I just want to share that with our millions of listeners um, and, and just you know, really let you in here. So it's going to be impossible to find toxic Avenger three now, because everybody's going to run out to rent it so that they can, the servers are going to crash. Yeah. Like no one's going to be able to see it. Cause they're all going to be curious to see where you grew up. I'm, I'm getting angry texts and messages from video tech uh, that like that there's too many people in the store all looking for Toxy three. They're, oh, they're already. listening live to this. So we haven't even, we haven't even aired this yet. They're already <laughs> it's, out. It's out there. The word is out. So uh, anyway, I just, you know, in thinking about movies, one, this is one of those movies that, that I had seen roaming the store. Uh, so that, that triggered that and, Boom, yeah. boom. There we are. So, uh, so I'm just, so for those listening who haven't seen the film in a while, uh, the King of comedy is a film about Rupert Pupkin played by Robert De Niro, who is an obsessed fan, uh, with Jerry Langford, who uh, is played by Jerry Lewis. Uh, he's, he's in, I guess he thinks he's an up and coming comedian who's desperate for success and desperate for his big break. And we see here the lengths that he would go to, to make that happen. Right. And the Rupert fallout Pupkin, of that. Rupert Pupkin is. And then, and then just a, the, the Jerry Langford character is kind of like a Johnny Carson type, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 So let's talk a little bit about 
kind of the creation of the film and and then we'll get back to our thoughts on it now and how it how it holds up today but it was a uh, a script that was written by Paul Zimmerman in the early 70s and it was based on an Esquire article uh on fanat- like uh, this fanatical Johnny Carson fan uh De Niro read this article and really thought this would be a great idea for a movie so in a way this is sort of De Niro's project right like he he started it and started shopping it around right Mm -hmm. yeah 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 so this is about the time they're making mean streets together him and scorsese and and they are uh you know just at the tail end of that and starting to look for other projects and clearly they had a great relationship with each other and, and mean streets was the beginning of that relationship that's still that's really still going strong today i think right I think Scorsese has a number of projects in the in the works in some level of filming or editing or or what, but I, I want to say De Niro's in probably two of them. Uh, but yeah, so he pitched this to Scorsese after Mean Streets, and and uh, Scorsese didn't want to do it. He didn't really feel a connection to the material. It didn't register with him, so he p- actually passed on it. And then it hit this kind of limbo phase where as many movies do or this this creative kind of discovery phase where directors will kind of tinker with the script and play with ideas and maybe do a like a camera test or something and then you know either move forward or not and that's where a lot of movies get into trouble like remember the 1997 superman starring nicholas cage yeah oh yeah. yeah like that it's gonna be wasn't that written and di- gonna be directed by kevin smith was that that one it was kevin smith or was it james cameron i i i remember both having like a superman mm. version okay but uh yeah and you can see i think there's footage out there of nicholas cage like in the wardrobe he's got long black hair it would have been ridiculous but i you think know, i prefer to not watch that yeah <laughs> we're all better off not having seen that but <laughs> uh so yeah, so this is going through this this limbo phase, and at one point, Michael Cimino, who directed The Deer Hunter, was attached to it, and uh, eventually, I think he passed on it so he could focus on Heaven's Gate, which, uh, in hindsight, I don't know if that that was the wisest choice in the world. Well, yeah. Well, his career his career went uh, you know in in the toilet after Heaven's Gate, which is a famous story. Well, right. Is I mean that's that's like infa- infamous that Heaven's Gate for for being kind of treacherous. Yeah, I mean it, it, that was for Chimino what Apocalypse Now was for for Coppola, uh, but right. Heaven's Gate didn't get the respect and didn't you know Apocalypse Now made some money. Heaven's Gate lost a ton of money and sunk United Artists as a yeah. as a film studio. So. Good Way job. to go, guys. <laughs> well done. Well played. Uh, so, but Chimino passes on it. Bob Fosse is uh, uh, briefly attached to the project too, but same thing, kind of went through the motions with it and then passes to make uh, Star 80, which was uh, which was a, a good film, but um, passed on this one. And then by this point, it's the early, very early 80s and uh, De Niro sort of brings it back around to Scorsese. Now, Scorsese's had this very heavy 70s career where you know he goes from Mean Streets to Taxi Driver and all the 
hoopla surrounding that film and and really becoming one of the stars of of new the new hollywood wave in the 70s it's really feels like in in studying that so much it feels like coppola and scorsese are sort of the like number one and two of that time period with friedkin and bogdanovich kind of behind there and then you've got spielberg and lucas floating around and yeah wonder whatever happened to those two guys never heard of them so Scorsese's got this, you know, he's coming off the high of, of Taxi Driver. Then he makes New York, New York, also, also with De Niro. So that's project number three. And they go right into uh, Raging Bull, which I want to say is at the time his most passionate film and took a lot out of him. I mean, you obviously you could see how creative that film was and how much of yourself you'd have to pour into it to to make a film like that. But all of these projects are going, he also does like the last waltz and Woodstock, mm-hmm. the documentary. So he's really going back to back to back and project after project and, and kind of nonstop for, I want to say like six or seven years, just straight through no breaks or, or no real breaks. And when you make a, when you make a films like those, like you, you really have to kind of step back afterwards and, just I think take some mental health time. And I don't think that was happening for anybody in the seventies. Yeah. Well, no, uh, the seventies were all about pushing the limit, right? Like yeah. just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Yeah. Until, until uh, you fall down <laughs> with cardiac arrest. Yeah. And that, that candle's going to burn out. And, and most of them did. I mean, when you look at the big directors of the seventies, I mean, when was the last, I'll do respect. When was the last great Peter Bogdanovich film or William Friedkin film, or, you know, a lot of those guys. So, right. Uh, obviously Scorsese is, is different. Um, Raging Bull is such a huge success, but again, he goes right into this project and, he is, you know, he's really physically not doing well at this point. He was very sick. He had just physically, he had pneumonia. He was worn out. And that is the worst way to start a movie because you're going to feel that way at the end. If you feel that way in the beginning, yeah. like, I, I don't know how you're going to do it. The amount of hours you got to work, come on. <laughs> it's insanity. But yeah, so it's it's interesting as they start this project up. I mean, De Niro, you know, he's raring to go. He's ready to go. This is his sort of his baby. But Scorsese takes an entirely different creative approach to those. You know, so many of his movies before and after this are very, very visual. And there's lots of moving camera. And there's lots of sort of, you know, like push-ins and pull-outs and dolly moves and and all of it makes sense for the story but for this movie he's it's much more straightforward it's much more static and straight on and that's something that watching it now really jumped out to me that it's lacking a lot of that but it still feels like a scorsese movie yeah it does you're right i've it's definitely not as prevalent in this movie, but the moments where it does happen really stand out. Like there's this, this, the scene where De Niro is standing in front of the mural of people and he's like practicing his, his standup and, you know, it's classic Scorsese, like Dolly back, you know, and it's just like, 
he's getting further and further away in this. And it's, you know, like it feels, you know, you're in this hallway, like it's such a, it's a really, really interesting, well-composed shot that is super powerful. And one of very few in the movie where there's actually a moving camera. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. It's, that's my favorite shot of the film. Oh yeah. It's, it's great. Yeah, it's this wall of, you know, he's standing in front of this, yeah, like you said, this wallpaper of just a laughing audience. But, which is, you know, I think you see that in other shots in his apartment. I'm pretty sure you do. Yeah. Not his apartment, his, the basement of his The basement house. of his mom's place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the difference with this shot is as it pulls back, yes, you see that hallway that doesn't exist. It's sort of just symbolic of his mind and this yeah. tunnel vision of- Tunnel vision on one goal. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's it. His whole life is about those people laughing. Yep. Yeah. And it really is like sort of, we'll get into the mental health discussion uh, in a minute, but it, it, that moment in particular feels like a moment of psychosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's plenty of moments peppered throughout, uh, the film that show show that, but this particular one really like does a great job of kind of, I don't know, symbolizing what it's like to be trapped in your mind like that. And it's just, it's, I thought it was, like you said, your favorite shot. I think it was the most powerful shot in the movie as well. I think it's, I mean, it's really, it's good. That's the art of filmmaking. See, that's the thing. Like even if Scorsese's being propped up with a stick you know, like you do a little, just a couple of those little subtle things and yeah. man, it really like sells what, what's going on, you know? And it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's really uh, an impressive use of, of the tools. I mean, that's, that's why, that's why I continue to like Scorsese's movies. Cause like he, he'll, even if the subject matter is not something you're into, like just the respect you got to give for from like a filmmaking standpoint because of his love of the art is just you know like he puts some of those things in there and then it turns mundane into magnificent and you're just like wow that's incredible yeah i think part of what great filmmakers do is you know they can take one image and really symbolize wrap that whole movie up in one image Right. And he's done it. I mean, he's done it a bunch of times. There, there's, you know, a couple of shots in Goodfellas that do it. Obviously, there's Raging Bull, the kind of the shadow boxing in the beginning is, you know, symbolic right there. And this shot symbolizes the entire movie, the whole story you can see in that one image. I mean, you, you yeah. can get the whole story. It, it's it's really incredible. And I don't know if I'm going to sound like an old geezer here, but I don't know if I don't really see that a lot from modern filmmakers or filmmakers in the last 20 years or so i think yeah. you'll you'll have you'll occasionally have some i think guys like wes anderson can do that i think because you need for those moments to work you have to take the time to let them establish and sink in and just film pacing these days and especially mainstream films is fast pace cutting, fast cutting, you know, like it's like attacking the senses, 
whereas, whereas, you know, letting something breathe, you know, it's, it's the lack of the attack sometimes that tells a, a, a truer point of view uh, to, to the audience. So, yeah, yeah. I think, I think you nailed it that not, there's not many filmmakers who just, who let things breathe and let the audience just absorb and take the story in it's you know especially mainstream yeah it's just boom 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 move the story move the story move the story and you don't get any time to kind of savor what's going on and and this is a movie that does the opposite it gives you it really lets you settle in with with your dear friend rupert pupkin rupert (laughs) we just got to say that name As as many times as you can Part of our contract is we have to say the name 100 times during the course of this recording. So, yeah, Rupert Pupkin, here we go. <laughs> um, so this is Scorsese's ninth film, I believe, and already his fifth collaboration with De Niro. And clearly that's uh, a pairing that was uh, sent from heaven and a gift yeah. to all of us. And I wonder, you know, it, it's it was interesting to me that they stopped working together. They, they've they've had these gaps where they didn't work together for a long period of time. So after this, there's a break all the way up until Goodfellas, and then they're, you know, working together again through most of the '90s, and then they're stopped for God, I guess, 20 years, and then together again with the Irishman and whatever else is coming. But uh, Robert De Niro in 1982 is riding pretty pretty high i mean i always remember him and pacino from when we were growing up being considered the greatest living actors at the time right is that is that how how did you where did he where did de niro rank in a general sense for you was he uh was he top five guy uh yeah I mean, as growing up, I mean, well, I yeah. mean, growing up, my heroes were like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, you know, I mean, yeah, but, but, you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, De Niro was, was in there for sure. As far as like, credible, on a respect level. Yeah. Yeah. De Niro, Pacino, although, you know, and I, I mean, I love Pacino, but like, um, I know he gets a lot of props for uh, his Godfather uh, character, but uh, man, I Scarface for me was where it was at with with Pacino. Like that was that was the one. But like, yeah, De Niro um, for sure was right there, right there with him. I'm now I'm trying to think of the others, but we're we're not going to talk about that right. Well, now. I think at the time they were, it, it felt like they were the most respected. You know, they may not have been the most popular per se. I mean, De Niro was pretty popular in the 80s. I mean, he was still doing, you know, Midnight Run and The Untouchables. Um, I God, think that they just demanded the most respect, right? Like, I mean, it wasn't even the roles that they were playing, you know, like, I mean, I, I think it all fed into this kind of aura about them, you know, that, you know, like they're, they, they're playing gangsters. They're playing tough guys. You know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're kind of 
exotic and you know i mean it's yeah. just yeah it wasn't it was definitely uh the dawning of a new age when it came to to actors and and i mean just movies and like the grittiness and films and yeah you know like what what the movies were about like there was darker undertones to to all sorts of the movies um at, during that time right oh yeah absolutely yeah so i think it played into the, i think they played really well into that and like just through that demanded kind of the respect and their performances i mean they were just phenomenal like in each each one was better than the next right yeah. and so they just kept building and building um and you know like i mean it took a long time i feel like it, obviously growing up, I didn't see every De Niro movie, but it took a long time when I was watching all of his movies to finally find one where I was like, oh, hmm, that's just pedestrian. Yeah. Right? Well, that, that sort of came later, but yeah. Right. In, in the first, the first part of his career, I mean, you look at that body of work from De Niro in the seventies. I mean, Mean Streets, Godfather Two, Nineteen Hundred, Taxi Driver, Deer Hunter, Raging Bull, all leading into this. I mean, that's a career's worth for most people right there, and that's like not even a ten-year span for him, right? And those right. characters are so so different from each other that you know the the range that him and Pacino both like could really hit at that time. I mean, that's how you could tell they're you know, where their passion was. Yeah. You look at them now in the later part of their career, it's the polar opposite, but. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, they're in the twilight of their career. Right. Yeah. So like, I mean, all those movies you just listed for, for De Niro, they're all heavy, man. Like they're like, I mean, they're great, but they're not light fairs. Like you're not like, Oh it's Saturday. Let's put on the deer hunter. Yay. Weekend. <laughs> like that's like, Whoa. And so, you know, yeah, I think they're, I think, I think um, they're both <laughs> trying to, trying to enjoy, you know, I mean, it's got to yeah. take a lot out of you to play those, play those characters in those roles in those movies. And, you know, I mean, I understand. I remember after uh we had our, our children, my wife and I, and I came home from work and she is on the couch. The, the babies, there were babies at the time, passed out, thankfully. And wh- what do I, what's on the TV? The deer hunter. And it's the, it's the flamethrower scene. <laughs> and like, what are you guys, what are you watching? And they're babies. Why would you show that to them? I can't even imagine a world where I see your wife watching that movie <laughs> with the kids. But that's a that's uh, you know what was was she watching because she was a curious observer and wanted to watch the movie, or was she exhausted from taking care of the kids all day and that was what you left on? I think I think the latter. I think yeah. it was the latter. <laughs> I will and say they like, weren't awake not, when she watched like, it. So. I'm not going to look for the remote. This is what's on. This is what's on. Yeah, she's uh, she's stuck with me. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> but look, I figure it this way: better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. <laughs> right. 
this performance in particular as you guessed it, Rupert Pupkin. Rupert Pupkin. I think this is an incredible performance. I, I watching it now, I feel like this is one of his best. I, I it's so strong, and he's he's funny. Like De Niro is not funny. Okay, yeah. Robert De Niro is not funny. We've seen that from Saturday Night Live. We've you like Meet the Parents, the first one. He's kind of funny, but he's just playing straight. Yeah, every other yeah. comedy's terrible. Yeah, yeah. What, grand, grandpa's war or fighting with grandpa or you know yeah. all those. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm trying to. Yeah, no, there's not really. I'm um, maybe. He's great in this. I'm gonna circle back to that. You yeah. are correct. He is phenomenal in this. He his unwavering optimism as Rupert Pupkin is like brilliant. Like, it's just, there's like, you root for the guy. Like I, yeah. I was, I, I was like, yeah, I want, I want this to work out for him, even though he's doing like, it's by today's standards, like, you know, he would have been escorted out of those buildings a lot sooner. Oh yeah. These yeah. days. Yeah. But yeah, I, and I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. But I, I was, I was rooting for him. I was like, yeah, come on. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, is he your quote unquote hero or is he your villain? Because you can make an argument both ways. Right. I think what makes him, for me, more a hero than a villain is that, I mean, granted, he, I mean, I don't know how far we're getting into it, but yeah, you know, he kidnaps Jerry Langford. That's like the extent of, his bad guy moves, right? Like he, there's no, he's not murderous. He's not, you know, like he's not trying to harm people to make his way, you know, like he kidnaps Langford and with a fake gun. Yeah. You know, never real, never any real threat of, of harm, you know, like he's inconvenient at best for, for all the people that he affects, but like, I don't know, you know, and, and he's just, yeah, I was rooting for him. So for hero to me, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. He's, he's sort of an anti-hero. He's like a stone cold Steve Austin a little bit in, in, in a way. I'm going to let you connect those dots. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, <laughs> now that, that he is a little bit, he's, I don't know that he's anti-authority, but he's not going to let authority get in his way of of achieving his goal and his vision. But thankfully for this story, he really isn't violent. He's not a real threat, like you said. He's just he's awkward, and he yeah. and he and he bucks all social norms, right? Because right. he doesn't, like you said, he's not going to let anybody throw him off his goal, whatever whatever that is. But he's not going to be aggressive or violent or hurtful towards anybody to do it. He's just, he has envisioned his success and believes without a doubt that that is the path that that is, that's where he's going to end up. Right. And nothing is going to, nothing's going to convince him otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Delusional, delusional for sure. But. Well, that's the, that's the word too. So yeah, when we t- when you talk about Rupert 
pumpkin that is uh it's a, compared to any other rupert that we're talking about <laughs> murdoch <laughs> rupert everett was he starring in this movie no uh i don't think so um when you talk about sociopath versus psychopath i don't know if those are I guess you could make arguments to categorize him one or the other of those. But I think delusional really is more of what he is and having these delusions of grandeur. And and he creates this fiction for himself because he just believes it so passionately. Yeah. Well, I'm no expert on mental health by any means, but some of the things that we were seeing him like his conversations with Jerry Langford, you know, like at dinner and things like that, things that were just like in his mind, like that's obviously delusional, but is that like part of, is that like a schizophrenic break? Like what is that exactly? You know I mean? Cause it's completely made up, but he believes it to be real. Right. Yeah. I don't think there's a real, there's no real evidence that it's, you know, one, anyone in particular of those um, mental illnesses. illnesses. Yeah. But, and that, you know, and that a lot of times, a lot, there's a lot of movies that do that. And, and a lot of times it comes from simply the creative team of that movie, not wanting to, or just not investing the time into researching, you know, sure, exactly what fair. each of those are. So they just make it this sort of generic thing. Yeah. But this is, I, I, you know, I don't think, I think it's, I think it applies to this too, but it feels like it's okay that it's a little more vague in this one. Yeah. Yeah. That you don't have the answers. He doesn't have the answers. He probably, whatever it is, is probably something he is. He probably hasn't been diagnosed with anything. Right. Because back then it wasn't mental, mental health wasn't a, as high of a priority as it is now. Sure. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, he's a nice guy throughout the, the movie, right? I mean, Yeah, he's quite he's just, polite to everyone. Yeah, he's just a fanatic who is delusional and believes that he's ultimately destined for, for greatness. And he's put himself on that path, and he's going to do everything he can to, to, to make it happen. Yeah. yeah. And those scenes where he... So it's it's... I think a, a really strong choice by Scorsese and the editor Thelma Schoonmaker, who's Scorsese's forever editor, mm-hmm. to the, where when we break from reality and we go into sort of the mind of Rupert Pupkin, the there's no change in the way it's shot. Like it, it's seamless. It looks right. it, this fictional, uh, this fiction he's created looks exactly like reality. So. When you see things that way, of course, it's going to blur what reality is. Mm-hmm. So uh, really, really cool choice to see that. How can I not think about it? I mean, I've been sitting here at lunch with you, which I knew is the reason you invited me from the first place. And all I'm sitting here and eating for is to get guilty with you, right? I'm asking you to take over the show for six weeks. I mean, what's six weeks? I'll give you anything, but don't ask me to do six weeks. I can't take over the show for six weeks. I can't even take over my own life for six weeks. And you're asking me to do something that's impossible. It's impossible. Don't you understand? What? What are you doing to 
around there so late? It's impossible. I'm trying to tell you that. What do you want? You want the tears to come out of my eyes? There's gotta be. You, there's gotta be a way you can work it out. It's just six weeks. And and the first scene where he's out to dinner with with Jerry. I mean, the way they cut from like your your sort of like the conversation is happening between realities because you see Popkin yeah. in his basement cut to Jerry on the reaction shot who's in the fantasy in the restaurant and De Niro's performance in there is just so seamless he goes from maniac not maniacal but a little bit w- over the top and right you know at, to when he's in he then he's just kind of like Johnny Cool in the restaurant that yeah you know, now he's doing Jerry a favor so right to yelling at his mom about, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, uh, it's really well choreographed. And you're so used to at that point, play, seeing De Niro play these strong, strong willed characters, you know, who are very, I don't know, very just not just passionate, but they're, they're, they're strong as I guess the only word I can use to describe them, but, to this character who lives in his mom's basement, who's, you know, having this whiny, you know, screaming, yelling relationship with his mother, that who you never see. She's just the woman upstairs who's kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of yelling at him down. Just down the voice. From she's just above. the voice upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. She's just the voice from upstairs. She's a faceless, faceless voice. Yeah, and you don't need to see that character either. No. No. What's the matter with you? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. Yeah, it's just De Niro's performance just blew me away. Uh, it's It was really refreshing to see him. And now from today's perspective, where I feel... 95% of what he's done in the last 20 years was really not remarkable and very much phoning it in and very much the same rinse and repeat kind of characters that he's done before and very little passion from there. It was really refreshing to go back and see a film I hadn't seen and see right. that old De Niro again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When he was still, I mean, you know, I mean, he was still making his making his name at that time, you know? And so, I mean, obviously he was a well-known actor, but like he wasn't phoning anything in, no. you know, he was, he was, he was earning the respect that, that people were, were willing to give him because of those performances and, and that he's putting everything he has into it. Uh, yeah. He's fantastic at this. You know, who else I thought was great though is Jerry Lewis, man. I hadn't really seen much of his work, but he does a great job in this movie playing the famous talk show host, Johnny Carson type, like just kind of the, uh, he kills it. Yeah, it was, I, I, my dad was a big Jerry Lewis fan. And so the Jerry Lewis that I knew was like the nutty professor, the wacky, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause that was his thing, but Jerry had kind of disappeared for most of the seventies. He really stopped performing, I think by like 70 or 71. 
and took himself totally out of the spotlight. So seeing him come back here, you're expecting that Jerry Lewis. And the only time I really thought about it is where he's walking down the street and the way he runs and the way he walks and holds his yeah. hands. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's just funny, but I think that's also just him too. Yep. I agree. I, I noticed that as well. I was like, huh, he runs, he runs a little silly. Yeah. <laughs> the, but his performance again is so, so great. I mean, I really buy that. He's this veteran talk show, nighttime talk show host who is really over it is he just feels like he's couldn't really care less. He's doing it because he has to, because he's under contract and doesn't yeah. love what he's doing. He lives alone. Right. You know, he's like kind of miserable, you know, it's just a sad life, even though yeah. he has all the means in the world at his fingertips. Like he's just, it's lonely and sad. Yeah. And when he is kidnapped towards the end and calls, calls the office and is speaking to his producer secretary and then his producer who they don't recognize him. Like they think it's somebody pranking right. that he still doesn't have the like, close enough relationships where they could tell the difference. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That performance. So when he, I mean, that scene in the, in the apartment with, uh, uh, who's it? Sarah, Sarah, Sandra Bernhardt, Sandra Bernhardt. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's fantastic that I also love the scene in his, I don't know. What is it? Country cottage or wherever where Rupert shows up with his date, like they were invited. And that scene, when he comes back to the house from playing golf and he's confronting Rupert is great. He's so good in that. Yeah. Well, and they were mess. They were really uh, doing some method stuff with him. Scorsese and De Niro were really apparently uh, kind of like teaming up on him and were, were supposedly calling him oh. some, anti-semitic uh words to oh really yeah to motivate that response and then and then the way jerry did it was just sort of that deadpan like dead serious like i'm not not joking around response I, i think it was a great great choice by him yeah it was really good i mean jerry lewis isn't known for his solid acting performances he's known as the silly jokester and then the telethon host yeah right that's what this performance was a very it was i mean it was a welcome shock when i when i heard when i saw that he was in it i was like interesting okay let's see how this goes but it was completely opposite of what i expected from him in the role which i thought was really nice I feel like you probably could have, there's a lot of actors that they could have gone after for this, this role. I mean, I feel like probably at this time you could almost got like a Paul Newman, maybe Newman was a, maybe a little bit young, but he's right around the same age. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and you could have gotten a really, really good performance too, but I really respect that they went after someone who was out of the spotlight and sort of a fresh take on that kind of role. Well, now I heard they tried to get Johnny Carson first, yeah. right? Was that, yeah. that was their first choice? But that's because the subject matter was basically based off a story that that Johnny was involved in. So, right. 
which is exactly why he turned it down, you know, too, too close to home. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, if you've lived that sort of story, I don't know if he'd want to uh, repeat that on film. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, like I grew up when I was growing up, Johnny Carson was on TV, you know, and it was, but it never really occurred to me because from that point forward, you know, there was Johnny Carson, there's David Letterman, there's Jay Leno, there's, there was always that person doing that show, but Johnny, I mean, not that Johnny Carson was the first, but he really truly was, he was the king, super famous. Like I didn't really think about that. Like he was on everybody's TVs at 10 o'clock at night. Everybody was watching it. And so everybody knew who he was. I didn't, I never really put it together until I was watching this movie and doing a little research that, you know, like, yeah, absolutely. Like this fanaticism that's represented in this movie is actually something that was happening to these talk shows back then. Um, because yeah, they were, they were Kings. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, you forget that at the time there was only one late night show and it was Johnny Carson and the tonight show and, and everyone was watching that. And, and it wasn't until 92 when Letterman left that there became suddenly there was Leno versus Letterman. And then later yeah. it was Conan O'Brien in the mix and then Jimmy Kimmel. And now there's like three or four on, you right. know, all up head to head. Then it was just Johnny. And that was such an important show uh, for comedians. I mean, that's where Seinfeld got his start. And, you know, if you made it to the tonight show, that was that you know was one of the highest things you could do as a comedian but then it was the the whole would johnny call you over to the couch so that was sort of an improv portion of the show that if johnny liked your stand-up he would invite you over to the couch and then do an interview with you for however many minutes they did it and if he didn't then that was sort of like not back to square one but you gotta you gotta work your way back there so Uh, and I think that's how Leno got his start too. And eventually yeah. how Leno took over that show, but that's right. Uh, yeah. Very, very important thing for comedians. So it's completely understandable why Rupert Pupkin would be so obsessed with, with uh, Jerry and, and the tonight show. Yeah. Now, do you think entire career? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, um, so they apparently went after like, several other members of the Rat Pack to play this role before they got to Jerry Lewis. So they went they went after Frank Sinatra. They went after Dean Martin. They went after Sammy Davis Jr. I think the Bob Fosse version, I'm pretty sure it was the Bob Fosse ver- version, had Andy Kaufman as the lead with Sammy Davis Jr. as Jerry Langford. Oh, wow. I mean, honestly, I could see both of them. It's a different, it's kind of a different thing. His comedy was strange, you know, in general. Like you never knew what was going on. Is he real? Is he fake? You know, so for him to step into a role where, you know, he's battling with, you know, in his head, real and fake, like yeah. it, it would have played in pretty nicely to to his whole image, right? And yeah. so, yeah, that would have worked pretty pretty well. Sammy Davis... Junior as uh, Langford is uh, interesting too, you know, like 
I haven't seen a whole lot of Sammy Davis, but I could, I mean, I think Jerry Lewis did such a great job. Like uh, I think it was the right call to have him. I'm glad that's where they finally landed, but it would have been a different, it would have been a different kind of, kind of movie. I, I, I would be also interested to, to have seen that, but yeah, I like, I like where it ended up. Yeah, I think I think they ended up with the right choice. I think with the best choice. I mean, if it was Sinatra, you know, he would have just taken too much, too much sort of attention away from Rupert because mm-hmm. you just want to watch Sinatra. Dean yeah. Martin and yeah. Sammy Davis. I don't know if they were the right caliber actors to play that role. Whereas Jerry. I think Jerry was always a good actor. I mean, he was playing a character when he did all the silly movies. Yeah. But that's yeah. the character that he created. So uh, I, I think this was, this was really great to see. And he really wanted this role too. I mean, he yeah. pushed, he pushed hard for it and he, you know, I, I he promised Scorsese that he wasn't going to play, do any bullshit games and wasn't going to do any ego trips. And yeah. uh, I think he struggled with it because during production, I think it was hard for Jerry because Scorsese was sick and they would, you know, go like they would only shoot for three or four hours a day, apparently, but it was really intense. So mm-hmm. they packed a full day's worth into like half a day just to keep. And then Scorsese was just literally in bed the whole rest of the time. But so I, I think that was a hard way to sort of like for Jerry Lewis to tr- come back to Hollywood under this kind of role where he wasn't getting a lot of time with the director and he wasn't really getting, I think getting all of his directors like personal attention that Scorsese was directing De Niro, but not necessarily directing him. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of these choices I think were, were Jerry's and, and it, uh, I think it works really fantastic. He's really great in it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's got like, I don't know. There's kind of this kind of greasy, swarmy edge to him that throughout the course of the movie sort of kind of melts away. And I feel like he becomes more human, you know, as, as we get further into it, he's never like entirely relatable. Right. Like, and I never am like, Oh, I can relate to, to this, but just the way that, I don't know, the edge to his performance kind of, starts to dull and i don't know like for me uh, intentional not intentional i don't know but it seemed to really work well in in the film and i thought he did a really stellar job yeah and he plays it so straight like he's not like you really don't see him joking and you don't even see him hosting the jerry langford show more than a few minutes right yeah yeah, uh, great. Uh, probably one of his career best performances. Now, I'm not completely familiar with the whole yeah. body of work of Jerry Lewis, nor am I that interested in diving in, but no, uh, great role here. I don't think I will, but I'm happy that I got to see him in this, and I think that he was really strong. Yeah. Uh, just switching back to the Rupert Pupkin character. So he's kind of based on, on John Hinckley a little bit, who was the, the Jodie Foster obsessed fan who ended up uh, attempting to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Right. Right. So he's sort of a, a, 
along those lines, but not as violent, clearly. Hinkley got obsessed with Jodie Foster from Taxi Driver. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. I guess. I don't know. Like he he to me seems more I don't know. Again, like the the De Niro character, the Rupert Rupert Pupkin character is is there's just no violence to him, you know? I mean, other than I mean, I suppose kidnapping is a violent or it can have violent connotations. Right. But it, they never were physical with him. They never hit him or abused him in any way. They held him kind of hostage again with like, I think it was a squirt gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and they taped him down, you know, like with an <laughs> the, the, the excessive they... <laughs> amount of tape, <laughs> you know, but like, like other than just being inconvenient again, like, so it's hard for me to, it's hard for me when you say that it, it, it's he's r- roughly based off Hinkley. It's it's hard for me to draw that similarity. Now, if you if you talk about Joaquin Phoenix's character in the Joker, and you you add him into the fray with the the uh, taxi driver, and maybe you throw some Tyler Durden in there, and like you know, I mean, like all those, like I could buy that a little bit more, but. You know, just because, I mean, that dude, like, tried to legit kill somebody. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think, I guess maybe it's more of the concept that is based on Hinckley and not necessarily the exact character. Because, yeah, I mean, Pupkin has ample opportunity to to really cause some violence and stir some shit up if he wanted to. But it's not even on his radar to do that. He's just, I mean, he's really. He wants his five minutes in front of the camera to do his bit. That is all that dude wants. Yeah. And you kind of feel bad for him because in the opening, I mean, the film starts with him uh, rescuing Jerry sort of from another obsessed, well, a mob of fans, but especially Sandra Bernhardt's character, which we find out more later. But he, you know, he gets Langford to his limo that he's trying to get to from the studio, but then he hops in there with him and then he's got... So he sort of forced Langford into a corner. Yeah, it was a little bait and switch right yeah. there. But okay. at the same time, it's like, well, he did do you a favor. Can't you, you know, can't Jerry just hear him out? Yeah. All he all he's asking him to do is like, hey, if you let me out here, the the nonsense is gonna continue. But if you just drive a couple blocks, it'll calm down. You can let me out and it'll be fine, you know, and, and right. I can pitch you my idea on on the way. Yeah. And Jerry sort of you know, does what probably most celebrities would do is just, you know, he's stuck with him. He, yeah, yeah, he plates, he placates him and then he's going to give him the brush off, which, which he does. And Rupert is just, uh, having it. Yeah. He's insistent. And he is, you got to give him credit that he's not going to take no for an answer. Right. I mean, he said, call, call my office. He did. Yeah. And then he came by. Then he came by again. (laughs) He's just holding Jerry to his word. That's all. Yeah. Let's talk about Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver compared to compared to Rupert Pupkin. Obviously, both played by Robert De Niro. Very different versions of a similar character that both I think both have their are kind of over society in a lot of ways and are, you know, skeptical of humans and how they are yeah 
but Travis is willing to like go to extremes to clean, to make his point. Whereas, you know, cause you like, you know, Trey, you think just separating the, the violent ending to taxi driver, Travis Bickle is uh, pretty close to assassinating. What is it? The Senator. I mean, he mm-hmm. goes to that. Uh, I mean, he basically attempts it and then fails. Whereas, Pumpkin is just so much more innocent. Seeming. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Completely. I mean, uh, I, I see the similarities, but I see some very, very distinct differences, you know, in, in, in their characters and just kind of their outlook and on an approach on, on life, you know, like, I mean, I know I keep saying it, but Rupert Pumpkin's, again, a nonviolent, you know, optimist trying to pursue a dream that has some form of mental illness that makes him extremely delusional. Right. You know, and, and it's been a while since I've seen Taxi Driver, but I know that, um, you know, he suffers from mental illness as well, but he's violent and, and his approach instead of being optimist is like being, you know, a, like a, a wrecking ball, like being a force to, to force the change that he wants instead of trying to just believe in the good outcome of, of his effort, you yeah. know? And so, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. But again, they tie it all up in part three with the Joker and, <laughs> and they mix them both. They're like a, a mixed little, little bag. Yeah. Yeah. As far as mental health goes, I feel like this is a lot more of an honest portrayal of a person with mental, you know, with mental illness that mm. it's not always the extreme, you know, sort of over-exaggerated character that a lot of Hollywood movies are going to, you know, portray it as right. That, you know, there's all varying levels of mental, mental illness. And some are very subtle and some are highly functioning people that, you know, just have a bit of a different way of talking to people and interacting with people and, or seeing the world. Yeah. I think when I was watching this movie, I, because of, you know, the nature of storytelling now and, and everything, like I was expecting it to go darker, right? Like I was like, okay, um, you know, he's kidnapped him. I think we always knew that the gun was fake, but like there's going to be a moment where he snaps and he goes ballistic or whatever, you know, to to make his point. And that never happens. Yeah. But then he leaves jerry with sandra and then there's like the whole this is another great scene man that scene where she's just like kind of toying with him yeah (laughs) like like the whole time um like i thought maybe she was gonna snap because i mean when you first get introduced to her like she is like she's the violent one she's like unhinged inside inside the limo that and and you know like and then Rupert jumps in and saves, you know, like 
saves Jerry and all that. But like, you don't find out until later that they have some kind of history together, like a fanatic history. Yeah. Just because they've constantly are standing in these crowds of people trying to get autographs and just be close to fame, you know, in, in, in that way that they know each other and they're, it's like a, it's like an autograph club, you know, yeah. <laughs> like where they're yeah. just like, they're like trying to help each other out and they kind of concoct this crazy kidnapping scheme. And eventually Jerry's just there with Sandra and like, I thought she was going to snap and, and yeah. end up like hurting him, but that doesn't happen either. Right. She I, just I, wants to have sex with the guy. Like, yeah. That's all she wants. She just wants to jump his bones. Like that's it. <laughs> that, that's such a great scene. Uh, and it's mostly improv between, between the two of them. It's very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She does seem the more violent of the two. I, I really didn't feel like Jerry was in, danger at any time until rupert leaves and and then it's just masha and and langford and you don't know what's going to happen right and it's it's kind of like i well i don't want to no it's not disappointing the way it plays out but it's sort of unexpected that he basically like is freed fairly easy and then just kind of has his moment of revenge with her where he just sort of like intimidates her and then he's like walking he's like backing her up and you know and then just slaps her and knocks her down and runs out yeah and he escapes yeah and she runs after him naked in the streets basically right you know i'm just like wow she's infatuated you know, and and her character got me thinking about Scorsese and the way women are portrayed in his films. I don't think it feels like a lot of his films have that toxic masculinity thing mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know if it's always conscious or not. And not to say that there haven't been women who have good performances in his movies, but the way women are portrayed are quite often ridiculous or uh over exaggerated or crazy or you, mm-hmm. you know they're if you go through and not every single one of them but quite a number are mm-hmm. so yeah I, and then she's really the only theme no i guess there's rita too played by diane abbott oh yeah yeah who that's, that's you know Rupert, seems like Rupert's sort of girl. Yeah, that was Rupert's girlfriend and actually Robert De Niro's wife at the time. Oh, really? Yeah. Did not know that. But she's also, to, to me, she feels like she's portrayed as sort of a weak character who can't really make up her own mind and is sort of letting Rupert kind of push her around into doing things that she doesn't want to do, which is really like spend time with him. <laughs> well, the fact that she's, I mean, yeah, uh, to your point, the fact that she continues to be with him after he puts, I mean, I, I think obviously the, the breaking point was the last date they had where, you know, he basically breaks into Jerry's house and takes her yeah. with him unbeknownst to her. They, they've broken in and are there uninvited, you know, but it, there's obviously a history of other 
incidents like that, you know, she makes kind of reference to. And so the fact that she allows that and continues to, to stay with him. Yeah. I think is an unfortunate, like kind of a sign of, of, of that as well, you know, like just kind of a weakness there that, that I don't think really plays well, but yeah, there's actually a deleted scene too. That's even worse that, Mm -hmm. um, so when she's out to, when they're, when Rupert and Rita are out to dinner together, you can see it in the regular cut that's sitting behind Rupert in, in like a corner booth is an actor named Chuck Lowe, who you would recognize as Maury from Goodfellas. Okay. And he's in the first season of Sopranos as well. Uh, and <laughs> Wait, what's that? Uh, Sopranos? Sup- a brilliant, Sopranos? brilliant show that, that uh, it's a hidden gem. Nobody's seen it. So yeah. I discovered it. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen it, check it out. <laughs> but uh, that's our other podcast. Yeah. Um, so he is like making these kind of gestures, kind of mocking Rupert behind his back. And Rita's like laughing and making this eye contact with him. And there's a phone booth in the back of the restaurant where they're at. And you can see him go to that phone booth, call the restaurant, like basically page her. She goes to the booth. You can see the two of them talking. And then after after Rupert drops Reed off at her apartment, he walks away and you can see Chuck Lowe come out of a car and he and Rita go off on like a date, a real date together. Mm. So I just, another scene, I mean, I'm glad it was cut out, but it, it makes her look even worse. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad they didn't leave that in there. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, unfortunately it, her character just plays this kind of, gullible and and kind of you know not not exactly smart you know i mean to be that's that's i mean to be to be continually kind of misled and 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 stuff by rupert's antics you know i just think fool me once you know (laughs) well well, and it's also that she doesn't have it's like she can't like she doesn't have a choice of her own you know, mm-hmm. oh, she has to go out with Rupert because he's coming up and asking her out. She clearly doesn't really, she's clearly not interested in him, right. but goes out with him anyway. Why? You know, why, exactly. why would she? What's the point? So, yeah, I don't know if that character doesn't age that well for me, but, uh, and again, I don't think it's the greatest portrayal of women in, in this film. Yeah. But Sandra Bernhard, uh, that being said, it's a great performance. I mean, she's yeah, so she's great. Again, passionate, and I I buy her character. You know, and, and how creepy is it to think that so much of these characters' time is spent, uh, whoops, uh, you know, just stalking Jerry essentially and just watching him and following yeah. him? Like that's really disturbing. Yeah. And to see the two of them interact, you know, with each other, there's this sort of like rivalry between the two of them. And, um, you know, she mocks him, but like he's made it all the way into the building and he's the only one who's established, you know, some kind of contact with Jerry. But of course he takes it to the extreme by, you know, really it's when he shows up at Jerry's country house that like, that's where it's gone 
too far. I mean, right. You can get, you can justify calling the office or dropping by. I mean, uh, you know, he was, you know, he saw the secretaries and he waited for, uh, you know, uh, Jerry's assistant or his, the producer's assistant to come out and talk with him. And he was very patient, but, uh, he really crossed the line by going to the house. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's definitely, that's when it, that's when it starts to get it. The turn gets really awkward. Yeah. Um, I think it's also there's also a commentary going on about show business here and really Scorsese's kind of lack of love for for the celebrity status. Sure. You can feel that that like there's there's no that's not something good. Like nobody or not nobody but there's really nothing to love about being a celebrity and having this happen to you and having people be obsessed with you and follow you and interested in everything that you're doing. And, and he was, it makes it look miserable. Yeah. Right. Like not, nothing about it. I mean, the, the famous person is miserable. Just we've already talked about that, but then, yeah, to have no privacy or strangers in your house or to be followed. I mean, all of it, you know, they, they talk about, there's a scene in there where they're talking, where they're kind of camped out waiting for Jerry to come out of his apartment so they can kidnap him. And, you know, they're talking about like, oh no, that's not him. That looks too much like him. So that wouldn't be him. Cause you know, he, he'd be trying to hide himself, you know, like just yeah. that kind of life sounds really sad. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But, and I think Scorsese at the time was feeling that celebrity status and he was just, this was his way of saying like, I don't want that. I'm not interested in it. Right. And he would, you know, he would, I don't think he'd ever really be able to shake that, especially, you know, come the nineties, come the nineties is sort of, I guess, sort of turned around again and just embraced it for being what it is. Like he's not going to be even like a Steven Spielberg level of, of, uh, celebrity but still pretty far up there yeah um how how funny do you think the movie is i mean do you think it works as a straight comedy or is it like where do you categorize it i don't think it's a i mean i don't i where do i categorize it i don't really find it to be a comedy at all. Like, yeah. I think all the characters are really sad, yeah. you know? And I think, I mean, there are funny moments, but every, there's not a happy character in the whole thing. Even no. Rupert with his optimism, you know, there's an underlying sadness about it as a, as an audience member watching this person who's just trying to pursue their goal, but knowing that they're misguided. And, you know, I mean, like, there's just kind of that, this, this, hopelessness about it it's it's kind of a drama slash thriller and i only say thriller because there is kind of an edge to it mm -hmm. the entire time that i'm watching it wondering is there gonna be like how far is this gonna go right? right like are they gonna and again that could only be because of movies these days and seeing it like maybe i would have been not ex thought about it that way 
had I seen it, you know, 20, mm-hmm. 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then saying, you know, saying that having seen Taxi Driver, knowing Taxi Driver was before this, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, I don't know, you know, it, there's kind of an edge to it because you don't know exactly what's going to happen next. But, but um, I'd say it's more drama than anything else. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, for sure, a very dark film. I do, I did watching it. So I've seen it twice. I watched it for the first time last year and then again for the show. I did feel a little more comedy coming mostly just from De Niro. Like, you know, when he's having that interaction with Jerry, the the fantasy at the restaurant, just how over the, how kind of over the top he is when he's in the scenes where you see him in the basement by himself yeah, and, and his fantasies with, where he's on the talk show with Liza Minnelli and, and, uh, and Jerry, right. <laughs> like with the cardboard cutouts and like that just played the second time watching it much funnier to me than the first time. Yeah. So, Do you get a sense in those scenes though? There's like an underlying, like there's an edge to it. Like there's like, like he's writing a line between trying to be like this kid comedic performance and almost snapping you know what i mean like i feel like when i watch it when i saw it and i've only seen it the once like there's almost an anger to his to his delivery of information in those specific scenes like almost an entitlement like how how why why haven't i gotten here already why you know like that i don't know there's something to it yeah no, I think yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I I think that does exist there too. It's something about the way he laughs that yeah, like Yeah, exactly. Like the laugh you said it earlier yeah. maniacal. And but it is kind of, right? Like it's yeah. it... Well, because it feels like the laugh is forced. Yes. It's not genuine. It's a forced laugh. I mean, He's like, I have to laugh here. This is this is supposed to be funny. So this this is where I laugh. And he's just yeah. making that laugh. It's very different from an actual person's l- genuine laughter. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I could see that. I, I could feel that that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's those moments that are kind of what lead you to think that something more might happen. Mm-hmm later when when he is kidnapped or or when he ultimately does get onto the show right you know that it doesn't that it's not just going to go as it does which is just kind of like he goes on he does his five (laughs) yeah and then he goes and he shows the lady that he wasn't a big liar in the bar and he turns on his performance on the tv show that's like the big thing he's like this is the start of it Right. How do you, how, so let's talk about the ending. How do you sure. feel about like, wh- what do you think happens with Rupert at re- for real at the ending? I don't know. any. so when I initial viewing, I was like, you know what? It makes sense. He does this thing to become famous. He goes and he does his time and I believe that they, you know, because they, he's got a best-selling book now and his own show and they're going to make his story a movie. Like, I'm like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. 
but then as I'm researching, I, you know, it, it, it dawns on me. Okay. Like maybe all that is in his head and he's just sitting in prison and maybe none of that's real. It's just all part of the delusion. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know. It's a hundred percent a coin flip for me because I think both ways work. Yeah, I, I think there, there's no, again, no clear answer. And that's part right. of what I like about the movie. Yeah, is I love it. I love it. I, I, you know, I love dark endings and, and endings with question marks. Not too many question marks, but just enough. Yeah. And this is, I think, a great, I think is the perfect ending for the movie because you really have no idea. At a certain point, of course, there would be media coverage over it. Yeah. But where does that end? And where does it morph into whatever this fiction is that he's created for himself? Or is it real? Um, because you could really see it, like you said, both ways. That Absolutely. Um, it's perfect. It's almost perfect. Because he's not crazy. You know, he's not, a, he's not overall crazy. He's delusional and maybe some other things, but he's not crazy. So Yeah, he's could- not like psychotic in any way. He's just... Again, he's a delusional optimist who is pursuing this dream he has to be a not even like a famous comedian. He just thinks that by I think in his grandmaster plan, this is what he thought was the easiest way, way to make it all work. You know, like I don't I think he just wants to be famous. Yeah. He wants to be have Jerry's job. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see it happening where, you know, if he was smart enough, he played his cards right with the media. He could have spun that into, you know, didn't like, I mean, he, different situation, but as far as spinning something into celebrity, like didn't John Wayne Bobbitt end up like hosting a talk show for a little while? And, you know, it, it can be done. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, did he, or did, did his, ex-wife i thought that he did i know he was like on howard stern a bunch and then i think from that kind of helped well right and it's that and it's that whole kind of i mean there's certainly those instances in celebrity being created by by these off things right yeah i mean yeah like uh, you know, uh, there's I I can think of a handful off the top of my head, but probably not appropriate to say. But there's certainly, I mean, certainly it happens. You know, yeah. it's like so. Yeah, like the media can create the frenzy, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there's going to be tons of media that are telling this story, like putting, you know. Rupert Pupkin's name out there. They're going to repeat it. It's going to be on the news every night for probably six months. And yeah. then, and then they will be like, they'll do a one-year expose or something. You know what I mean? Like where they, where they rehash it and then he's going to get out of jail. And of course the news is going to be like, Pupkin's getting out of jail. Remember that guy? Like he's going to be a household name. Yeah. You know, like everybody's going to be talking about Pupkin. So he very well could have written a book while he was in jail or, or partnered with the guy who got booted from doing his interview because Pupkin came on, 
right? He was an author that wrote about what oh yeah the 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 lions or whatever. And so, you know, that guy could have been his ghostwriter. He could have written the whole pumpkin story. People are gonna read it. They're gonna want to read it because this crazy guy who kidnapped Jerry Langford to get his five minutes. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a bestseller right there. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And yes, yeah. some movie guy is gonna want to make that movie. So yeah, it absolutely makes sense that that could be how it played out. But it yeah. also makes sense that it could all be in his head. Yeah, I love and it. and and where where the film leaves you with that. You know, it's finally Rupert Pupkin has his own show. He's now the late night talk show host. And it's just this kind of zoom in, this this steady cam move in on him where the yeah. announcer is just repeating to this deafening applause, just repeating his introduction of Rupert Pupkin, Rupert Pupkin, it's Rupert. Um, yeah. And it's just this long push on on his face. and And is that just is that reality or not? You're just left with the question. Now, I could see this very easily fast forward, I guess, 40 years, almost 40 years in the future. And along comes Joker, where Robert De Niro is playing a late night talk show host named Murray Franklin. Murray Franklin sounds like Rupert Pupkin a little bit. Um, you could see that Rupert could have evolved if it all went his way. He's achieved his goal. Now he's just going to ride it out. He could easily become Murray Franklin. Yeah. So, and then the roles are reversed that you've got this other character who, again, a lot more obvious uh, pointing at mental illness. And, yeah. and that's part of what I dislike so passionately about Joker and, I think Joaquin Phoenix's performance, fantastic. But I don't like what the film was saying because they pretty much say it that like, oh, this is a guy with mental illness. And this yeah. is, it's it's alluding to like, oh, this can happen to people with mental illness. Right. Um, that's not a fair uh, die to cast on, no. on people. You know, there's so many different levels of mental illness. And yeah, there are people... Uh, there are people that are not mentally ill that are angry and do horrible things. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bad look. Um, but all that aside, certainly could see how you can draw the lines from, from Rupert Pupkin to Murray Franklin uh, to, is that his name? Murray, yeah. Murray Franklin. Yeah. Rupert, yeah. Um, from, King of comedy to, to Joker for yeah. sure, at least the character, you know, and then. So yeah. you could, you could make a roundabout case that the Scorsese cinematic universe, the SCU <laughs> and DC are part of the same universe. I, I think you've said it. <laughs> and I, I think, it, I think it, it holds a lot of water. It's a real thing now. So you could have Superman busting up the, uh, you know, Henry Hill and his gang from uh, from Goodfellas, right? Uh, I'm just waiting for the Zack Snyder cut of Casino. <laughs> the, the Snyder cut, of, Snyder cut two Casino. Yeah. Or Green Lantern busting up the Lufthansa heist from Goodfellas. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I see it. It's all happening. I'm not a fan of Joker, obviously, and the one angle that did 
I did find interesting was, oh, is this, can I watch, can I view this as a sequel to the King of Comedy? So I think you can. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've said it here a couple different times, but I think that the Joker is very much at least a, a, it's, it's, you know, the melding of taxi drivering and the King of Comedy. Yeah. You know, with a little bit of, white face makeup a little bit just a little bit and a lot of joaquin phoenix a lot of joaquin phoenix so what do you okay think about scorsese's work as a whole where does this one fit in for you does it i i think for me this has really grown on me i mean i'll always love goodfellas and and some of the others and raging bull and taxi driver but i I'm really into his 80s stuff. Like I now I I love After Hours. We've covered it on the show. You can listen to it at www.reconcinemation.com. I'm a huge fan of The Color of Money. I think those three movies are really underrated gems uh, from his his library. And it, you know, it's hard to make arguments for them being better on a whole over over a Goodfellas or a Raging Bull, but you know, those are probably those are probably my top six uh, top six Scorsese films: Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, After Hours, King of Comedy, and and Color of Money. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's oof. I really like Shutter Island and The Departed as well. But Shutter, see, the problem I have with Shutter Island is that it doesn't really feel Scorsese. It feels like it's a good thriller and it's a really good movie, but it feels like other people could have directed that, that that it doesn't have that stamp of Scorsese like his other work. That's how I feel about The Aviator, but... Yep, Aviator similar, yeah. Yeah. Gangs of New York, I'm not a, I don't, I mean, I don't know how people feel about that one. I'm not a huge fan, but I mean, yeah, this is, there's so many good movies. I, you know, the thing is, it just goes in the list of all, all the other good movies of his that I, that I like. I mean, that's what it is. Like, it's really hard. Like, I can't, this is what makes it weird with me and Scorsese is I can't say that I have a single movie of Scorsese's that is my favorite. I just, if I like the movie that he's done, like I like them, it's a good quality movie that I know that I'm going to enjoy watching like over and over again. Yeah. And it's like, it's not like one without the other. I mean, there are, there are ones obviously from a like pop culture standpoint that get a lot more praise like Goodfellas, you know, but I mean, for me, like I like Goodfellas, I like Casino. I like the color of money. Just like, I mean, color of money, dude. Like I could put that on just about any time and watch that. I find it infinitely entertaining. It's a school. It's a school in itself. The color of money. And I know that it's like one that gets just shit on constantly from all sorts of different angles, but I like it. Uh, Last temptation of Christ I've never seen, but I'm curious. I just remember it being really controversial when Mm -hmm. it first came out. Like I remember there being, where I grew up in Houston, like there were pickets outside of 
the theater. And I don't know if it was different oh, yeah. where you were in New York, uh, you know, Texas, obviously certain areas are more conservative. So maybe that was just a thing there, but I remember that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, like this, this sits right in there with all the other movies of his that he's done that I really enjoy. Like, I mean, that shot that we talked about earlier in the hall mm-hmm. pulling back, like, honestly, that's probably one of my favorite shots of any of his movies. Like, I really like that shot. Like it is, it perfectly sums up what's happening in the, in that movie. So I, I mean, yeah. It's almost, that shot is almost like a Kubrick kind of shot too. Right. Like it just, it's, it like has its, it like it should exist in its own life. You know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there should be, there should be like in film school, we would have talked about that shot as, oh, you yeah. know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Similar to the match on action for 2001 <laughs> with the bone going up in the spaceship and all, you know, it's like, okay, like those are shots that craft filmmaking. And mm-hmm. like, that is one of them. It's, and it's a bummer that more people haven't seen it. Yeah. It's, it's too bad that, I mean, I, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I mean, no, I, I think I, you can rent it, but I, I don't uh, think it's included. It's, it's not free, but it's worth renting for four bucks. Yeah. From wherever you rent your movies. Yeah. Which, which really seek out your brick and mortar stores and uh, give them your money. You know what? Amazon's got a lot of money. Netflix has a lot of money. Yeah. Let's, you know, give the heart, the heart, the, the brick and mortar stores, give them a little bit of love. So, yeah. You know who doesn't have a lot of money? Blockbuster in Bend, Oregon. Go check it out. <laughs> That's definitely worth a visit. I will point out, I, I appreciate all this, this love for Blockbuster. And I, I did enjoy Blockbuster, but remember back in the day, Blockbuster is what killed the, the Ma and Pa video store. I can't stand Blockbuster, but it's not Blockbuster. It's the last Blockbuster. Yeah, that's it's, true. It's different. And it's basically a Ma and Pa shop just with the Blockbuster name. I mean, right. it's family run. I know this isn't the podcast to talk about the last Blockbuster on the left or whatever the hell the name is the of the movie, but yeah, that's definitely a documentary worth checking out. It's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've already hit it once with, uh, you know, you should check that out just to see, get a glimpse of movies one in uh, from Peekskill, New York, in the in the eighties <laughs> and nineties. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk. So we know we've been we've been talking about how the movie is kind of overlooked and was forgotten by time and and not really for a long time considered one of his greater films. But let's talk a little bo, a little box office. Uh, the movie, the budget for this movie was $19 million, which is a pretty good amount for a movie of this caliber in 1982. That sounds pretty high. Yeah, yeah. Well, probably at this point, both Scorsese and De Niro were expensive. And, yeah. you know, they only shot this, like I was saying, a few hours a day. So it was probably fairly expensive to just do yeah. everything they had to do in a condensed time. On the streets of New York, by the way, with yeah. with New Yorkers just watching them film. Right. That was the other thing that I noticed quite a bit is that there's just onlookers watching watching things. It give you know like they're just doing their scene, 
in the middle of New York. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of movies that you can tell do that, that long lens and just watching the actors move through the city. Ghostbusters does it a ton and you see a bunch of people looking at the camera, yeah. uh, you know, in that. But uh, so the budget's 19 million. It comes out on February 18th, 1983. Uh, the domestic run, the grand total domestic run, 2.5 million. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. It debuts at number 23. How does Scorsese ever make another movie after that? Well, he's still got his reputation. I mean, he's still got Taxi Driver and Raging Bull that he's, yeah. you know, still coming off thing. the best uh, director, best picture, all of that. Yeah. Um, it ends up number 122 of 1983, sitting right between your Hunter from the Future and Rumblefish. What? Yeah. I've at least heard of Rumblefish. Your I'm is, from... yeah. Your... That's a movie that uh, our good pal uh, EK would probably cover at Laser Graves. So, 100%. And when he does, I can't wait to listen. Yeah. Maybe you'll have to guest host on it. <laughs> the... I'll pitch that. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, not a commercial success at all. Uh, a big disappointment, uh, actually. But, I think in the long run, it's gotten, I, I think it has come back around, especially in the last year or two that more people have turned eyes on King of Comedy. Maybe still not quite enough, but it's uh, at least getting some recognition now. Yeah. Well, that's good. I think probably because of the Joker though, right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, you know what? I'm glad more people are seeing it. I think everybody should check it out. It's It's really... It's worth your time. Yeah, especially if you're a fan of, well, Scorsese, De Niro, or a fan of New Hollywood, that, that New Hollywood wave from the late 60s to the early 80s. This is still very much a part of that, even though it's coming in at the tail end. It's a, a great piece uh, from Scorsese that's, that's in that group. So highly recommend it. Uh, I'm going to rate it on our Reconsina scale. One to ten, where it holds up for me, I'm gonna give it like an eight point eight. Oh, that's good. That's very good. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this early in the show because I was like, I know we're gonna have to do this, and I didn't want to like overshoot because I was like, am I just, you know, is it just recency bias because you know, just watched it and I'm all. Hot and heavy on it. You're hot on it. I am hot on it. Uh, and then I gave it like a number in my head and I was like, you know, maybe that's too low. And then you throw out an 8.8, you said? That I did. I'm going to go 8.2. 8.2. All right. That's fair. I like it. I like yeah. it. I'm going to stick with that. Okay. So we'll average it out at like an 8.5. We're just going to call it 8.5 even. That's David's score. He would have gone right. 8.5. We're going to give David a score here in spirit. The the David Munchak memorial score. Yeah, the 8.5. No. <laughs> it's his, you know, half vacation day score. Yeah, he's faxing it in right now, actually. So here, here comes the fax machine. <laughs> On the facsimile? Yeah, the facsimile with uh, printer paper that we have to tear off. So. Yep, it rolls into a nice little scroll. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, cool. It was good to uh, 
It was good to look at a a forgotten Scorsese movie uh, together. It wasn't even forgotten. It never existed until <laughs> I until we watched it this last week. Hey, right. we found it. There you go. We've discovered a hidden Scorsese film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've had a fun couple of weeks. We've got, you know, thank you to all the uh, listeners out there. We have some of our highest numbers uh, ever on the history of the show. So thank you for uh, those who are tuning in. And, uh, you know, let's say thank you to all of our friends like EK and check out his podcast, Laser Graves anywhere you uh, get your podcasts. Thank you to our friend Curtis for the poster as usual. And uh, don't forget to check out our social media. We're at Reconcinimation Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, where uh, all of our archives are at www.reconcinimation.com. And we're looking forward to coming back next time. Maybe David will be back uh, from vacation. What do you think, Brent? Yeah, probably. I mean, he doesn't have that much time, right? It's only a day. <laughs> but we record like five episodes a day, so it That's can true. go by very quickly. Well, we got to get somebody on that bus. Yeah. <laughs> I can see him riding back in like Dumb and Dumber, like that scooter. Yeah. Snopsicles. Like, here, here he comes across the country. <laughs> yeah. He, he calls that the Munchmobile. The Munchmobile. <laughs> so. All right. All right. Come on well, back, David. Yeah, come back, and we're looking forward to David returning, but it's always uh, a good time to hang out with you, Brent, and uh, thanks for for tuning in, everybody. We will see you next time on Reconcinimation. Take care. Bye now. (laughs) Shout out. Ladies and gentlemen, the man we've all been waiting for, and waiting for. (laughs) Would you welcome home, please, television's brightest new star, the legendary, inspirational, the one and only king of comedy, ladies and gentlemen, Rupert Pupkin. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Rupert Pupkin. Wonderful. Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen. Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Rupert Pupkin. Rupert Pupkin.